5. If you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. For you have worked wonders, plans, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like the rain against the wall. Like heat in a drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silence. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on his mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, a refined and aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all the peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God from whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trodden down in his place. A straw is trodden down in the water of a sorry, a straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile, and he will spread out his hands in the middle of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride, together with the trickery of his hands. The unassailable fortifications of your walls will be he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, even to the dust. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Todd. Well, that says that death will be swallowed up forever. I love that. We'll come back to that passage later on in the sermon. We're going to be today, we're going to be in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, reads this way. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. 
So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had had their fill, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who, by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, to make him king Jesus withdrew again to the, in the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have once again to gather together, to learn from your word, to grow in your word. Lord, I pray that today we would see an angle on this passage that maybe we have overlooked that, Lord, we may learn something, that, Lord, you may challenge us in our own walk with you. God, I pray that um, through your word you would change us, that you would bring repentance, that, Lord, you would bring confession, that you would bring conversion. I pray this in your name. Amen. Now, during this Christmas season, we not only focus on the person of the Savior, which we absolutely do, but we also try to make an, effort, an extra effort to meet the needs of others. Christmas movies abound with these messages, don't they? If you watch Christmas movies, this is pretty much the theme. Look out for other people. See, look at other people. They abound with messages of selflessness and looking out for our fellow humans. As Christians, we know that Christmas is, is, is not the only time where we are called to serve others. In fact, as a church, our objectives should follow the great commandments which are taught by Christ. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know about you, but I love myself quite a bit. Right? I wake, when I wake up in the morning, I take a shower. I make sure that my hair all looks good. I, uh, I take care of myself. I do proper hygiene things, you know, wear deodorant and, 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 uh, and brush my teeth, things like that. I try to make sure that I take care of myself. I dress appropriately. I try not to look like a slob. You know, I don't wear my holiest t-shirt, even though it is holy. No, just kidding. Oh, sorry. Um, I don't wear my, my worst clothes to go out in the day. I, I mean, I try to dress appropriately for the day. If I have work to do, I wear work clothes. If I have more professional things to do, I wear more professional Garments as well as I'm sure you do as you do. But Christ has commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So what does that look like? <clears throat> I'm commanded to love my neighbors or my fellow humans just as much as I love myself. Since I would seek the good of myself and the good of my own family, I must also seek the good of those around me. Since I would serve my own family and I would serve myself, I would, I'm commanded to serve others around me, the people that God has placed around me. In our passage today, we'll see this remarkable way in which Jesus cares for and serves those whom the Father has placed around him. Think about that. We often, we seek money or we seek power and, and, and so that we no longer need to serve. Right? I want to have that position at that job so I don't have to do that type of work. I want to have this kind of money or this kind of power so somebody else can serve me. Right, The dream is to have a butler. Right, 
So they can get your food for you. They can take care of all that for you, right? And it's like, yes, I want a butler. <laughs> um, but yeah, these are these things that we think of as these, these visions of luxury and these visions of power and of, and, of, and of financial status. Yet here we have Jesus, the very son of God, who rightly deserves to be served and worshiped. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Today we're going to see a miracle that's often called the feeding of 5,000. A few verses after our passage, Jesus will explain the significance of the miracle. So, uh, so I don't want to take away Jesus' thunder. Next week we'll look at how Jesus unpacks what's going on in this miracle. Today we want to look through, um, to, uh, set a foundation for next week as we focus on the incredible hospitality of our Savior. Looking at his example, we will look, also look at ourselves and ask how we can follow and serve King Jesus by serving those that God has placed around us. First thing we'll see in this passage is that Jesus is concerned about the needs around him. Jesus is concerned about the needs around him. So let's unpack this in these first seven verses where we see this aspect of Jesus, that he is concerned for the needs around him. Let's, let's unpack these verses. Starting in verse one, then we have, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. In other words, they're... It's different names for the same thing. Now, it most likely in Jesus' day, it was not called the Sea of Tiberias. So John then, in this particular part, is speaking to his own audience several years later, who probably might also know it as the Sea of Tiberias. So now he knows we're talking about the same place, right? Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, same location. Um, and so now we're on the same page. Remember, John is writing probably about 60 years after Jesus has died. So this is uh, lots of lots of things have changed, uh, probably geographically, especially in the way they were named. So John uses this this language. He brings that up not to confuse us, but to help his readers understand. Uh, verse two then says a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now again, we see the same thing we've seen over and over again in John that Jesus' followers, these people that are following Jesus, not the twelve disciples, mind you, but these large crowds that are following Jesus. What's their motive? Why are they following Jesus? Because of the miracles, not because he's the savior. Not because they see him as the Messiah, but they want to see something miraculous. Maybe they want something miraculous to happen to them. They're looking for miracles. They're searching for miracles. So already um, we, we, we see that there is, there is an ulterior motive to these followers. In fact, we'll see later on in, the, in, the, in this very chapter, we'll see just how poor those views were. We'll unpack that later on in the passage. Verse 3, then continuing on, Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now this seems like, again, seems like a fairly insignificant detail. Yet, as we unpack this whole chapter next, next week and following, we'll, we'll see more about what's going on here. Why is this so significant that Jesus is up on a mountain when he does this? So we've already seen that there's all these mosaic themes, right? There's, there's this idea of Jesus is the prophet like Moses. We've been reading that a couple of times in our scripture readings, reading out of De Deuteronomy 18 that has this prophecy about how the prophet like Moses will arise. And we should listen to him. This is a very clear messianic prophecy about the coming of this prophet like Moses who's going to bring salvation to the people. 
So here we have Jesus again is bringing, the, the gospel writer John is, is bringing forward again these messianic themes. So if, if we want to say, well, how does that look like Moses? Where was the law of God received? On a mountain, right? On Mount Sinai. As a matter of fact, there's a large portion of Moses' writings. Remember, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There are these five books that are often called the Pentateuch. The, 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 it's the, the one word to describe all of it, the Pentateuch, or sometimes in the, in the New Testament referred to as the law. Right, these first five books, Moses's writings. These, this in, in that particular passage, in just those five books, they are at Mount Sinai from Exodus 19 all the way to Numbers chapter 10. So in those five books, they're at one place for that whole time, Exodus 19 to Numbers chapter 10. So being on a mountain would be pretty significant, right? There'd be, they would bring up these themes of, oh, things going on in the law, Moses. It would, it would bring out all these different kind of ideas. A large portion of Genesis to Deuteronomy takes place on the mountain where Moses received the word of the Lord. This is just the beginning of the parallels that this, that this chapter alone brings forward about Moses. Um, and, there's, and some of these are even a continuation of some of the parallels we've already seen. So he is up a mountain, just like Moses received the word of the Lord on the mountain. Jesus is on a mountain teaching. So here we have this uh, again. Now, this, this, these themes will come up and we'll unpack these as we hit them. Verse four, then let's continue on. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. This is the second of three Passovers in the gospel of John. Um, there are three particular Passovers that are mentioned. This is one of the ways that we estimate that Jesus's ministry probably lasted about three years. This is one of the ways we do that. The first Passover, we saw a few chapters ago. The second Passover is this one right now. And the third Passover is when Jesus dies. So the third Passover that gets mentioned in the Gospel of John is, is when Jesus is crucified. The first one and the last Passover both take place in Jerusalem. Jesus is in Jerusalem for this Passover. This is the only of the Passovers where Jesus is in Galilee. Of the three that are mentioned in John, this one is mentioned in Galilee. Now, that also helps us understand because uh, in the Gospel of Mark, there's some details that are mentioned in the Gospel. This, is, this miracle, by the way, is one of the few miracles that are mentioned by all four Gospels. Right? So that brings some more significance to what's going on in this particular miracle. In the Gospel of Mark, it mentions that the grass is green. Right? So if the grass is green, it needs to be probably springtime. Right? Now, John is the only one that mentions that this is taking place around the time of the Passover, which would be... Around springtime. So be like March, April, right? Before the sun could come out and burn the grass and make it all brown. We know that all too well in Texas, Amen. right? Amen, indeed, right? So we know this, right? So this is, uh, so being the, so bringing up that there is, that, that, that it is around the time of the Passover helps us understand why there's, you know, Mark just brings up that there's another detail here. The grass is green and that doesn't disagree with John at all. In fact, they, they corroborate each other's stories. Um, and, and, and later on in this, even in this passage, we see that they, lay, they, they sit down on the grass. So that, it, 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 again, it's not a super significant detail, but it does help us to get a timeline of where things are at. Verse 5, now this is where some things really do get some pretty, we get some pretty significant issues here. It says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now let's unpack this verse. 
This right here, this is kind of the, 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 this section right here, this phrase, lifting up his eyes. It's where I get, it's where I pulled this, this is where I got the idea for the, for the point that I called it, right? Jesus notices, he, he sees the needs of the people. Lifting up his eyes. Edward Clink uh, points out that similar to chapter 4 and verse 35, where Jesus exhorts his disciples to lift up your eyes and look at the fields. Now it is Jesus who lifts up his eyes. That is, he is attentive to the needs around him. This phrase then becomes a significant point in the narrative. Here, Jesus does not simply ignore the needs of the people following him, people who are following him for the wrong reasons. Uh, We have seen before where Jesus has rebuked people who are following him for the wrong reasons. Yet that does not stop him from caring for their needs. As a gracious host, There is no discrimination. There is no evaluation which prevents Jesus from serving these followers. Instead, he sees the need and he immediately seeks for a way to to meet that need. He lifts up his eyes and he notices that there's a need. He searches for the need and he sees it and he finds it. Secondly, we see in this very verse, another thing we see in this very verse is that there's a large crowd following him. Now, later on in the passage, it will say that 5,000 men were seated. Now, it specifically actually changes the word. Usually, it's saying people, people, people. The word for, for mankind is there. People, in general, the word is there. Then when it gets to where it names the number of 5,000, it actually uses the specific term for men. So it's not, there's, a, there's a definite significant change in the description here. So the fact that there's only 5,000 men does not count the women and the children. It's possible that scholars are, are, are uncertain about how many, but it's up to 10 to 30,000 people that were there that day. 10 to 30,000 people are following Jesus. And he lifts up and he sees the need. This becomes significant later on in the passage, and we'll unpack that when we get there as well. But this helps us understand the enormous size of this crowd. 10 to 30,000 people. If you've been to a professional sports game, you might know what that looks like. It's a lot of people. <clears throat> then he asks Philip, then in verse 3 here, he asks Philip, where do we buy bread? so that these people may eat. He asked Philip. Philip was the obvious choice. Philip was from a nearby town. Um, So he was from that area. He was from Bethsaida. We see that in chapter 1, verse 44. So he would best know how to secure food. If anybody's going to know where they can buy food at or where they can get food or how they can get food, it's going to be Philip. Now check out how Philip answers this. This is fascinating. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Now, all of you know how much a denarii is, right? No? Oh, we don't, pay, we don't use that kind of money anymore. Well, a denarius in, in, in the ancient Roman world, it's, it's, it's estimated by scholars that was probably about a day's wage. So what, would you, what you would make an entire day was called a denarius, right? So this is, Philip is saying 200 days worth of money would not even bring us enough money to get everybody just a small bite. How in the world, eight months worth of work couldn't feed all these people? Right? Eight months worth of work couldn't feed all these people. And, and uh, so he, he brings that forward and, and, uh, and asks that question, he, rightly so. Right? Jesus says, hey, go, how, where can we get enough food for all this stuff? He's like, are you kidding me? There's no way. I don't have eight months' salary just sitting in my pocket. 
And that would even give everybody just a small bite. Right? So he's dumbfounded by this. <clears throat> and uh, and so this, is, this is what happens, what, uh, what Jesus does uh, here. Um, Uh, verse four, verse four, uh, look, look, or sorry, verse six. Let's look back at that. Jesus had asked him the question, and what does what the, script, the scriptures tell us? That Jesus Himself knew, right? We saw already how Philip responded. Philip responded, "How in the world is that going to be even possible?" But what do we already know from verse six? Jesus knows exactly what He's doing. He asked Philip to test Him. He had a reason for asking Philip this question. Just like he usually does. You've seen Jesus do this before. He asks somebody a question, and they're like, wait, what? They don't get it, and Jesus has a real, he has a deeper reason for asking this question. Here again, he is asking Philip this question with the intention of testing him, because he knew exactly what he was going to do. This didn't surprise Jesus. Philip's response didn't surprise Jesus. He's the all-knowing God of the universe. He knew exactly how Philip was going to respond. He knew exactly how much food was going to be available to him. And he knew exactly how he was going to take care of the problem. And here we're going to see how Jesus actually does that. What, what in the world? What's going to happen here? We kind of get left. This, if you were to stop right here, this would be the worst cliffhanger ever, right? This would be the most depressing place to end. Let's pause right here for a second, not to be depressed, but to kind of unpack what we're looking at here. Jesus here, again, we're seeing how Jesus is concerned about the needs around him. So how does that look for us? If we see Jesus as this great host, this host who gives us an example, not only of, uh, uh, it gives us this example of how to serve others, right? So here, what, what do we learn about this great host here? We see in this passage that Jesus lifted up his eyes. Sensitive to the needs of those around him. Are we sensitive to the needs in our own community? Often, churches become so focused on what's happening behind these walls. Get so focused on, uh, on what's going on with, with the property, what's happening with the carpet, what's happening with the Christmas decorations, what's happening. And again, those are good things. I'm not saying anything negative about those things. But if we focus on those what, what about the community? What are the needs in our community? Now, I actually had the privilege this week of meeting with a church member who had lots of ideas on how to serve the community. It was a, it was a wonderful conversation. This kind of mentality is exactly the kind of members that we need at First Baptist Church of Gordon. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for people who, who have an eye, who are lifting up their eyes and looking for the needs in our community. Often, we may see a need, but then we expect that that's somebody else's job to do. Maybe it's the pastor's job. Maybe it's the music leader's job to do it. Maybe it's the deacon's job to do it. We see a need, and then we just expect somebody else to take care of it. However, pastors and deacons are not the only members that are called to serve. If you see a need in the community, would you be willing to take the lead and see that that task is accomplished? Every one of us are called to serve. We have ministers here right now, we have ministries here right now that are underserved. Right? We don't even, there's even stuff that's, there's stuff going out in the community absolutely that needs to be tended to, but there's even stuff within our own walls that are not being attended to. We have some very severely underserved areas. The nursery, children's ministries, 
Youth programs are vastly underserved. And the sad reality is that's pretty common in most churches. Those are some of the most underserved areas. If you come here on a Wednesday night, you'll find that we are vastly outnumbered. (laughs) Vastly outnumbered. Now, again, that's a good thing. That's a good problem to have. But it will also burn out those who are faithfully serving. It will burn them out so quick. Now, if you're not sure how you can serve, if you don't have any, how can I help? I guarantee you, you show up on Wednesday, we'll find something for you. There's plenty of things that need help. Show up for Sunday school. Ask where you can serve. We've got a place for you. The sad reality is um, uh, is that in most churches, we have 90% of the ministry that's done by the church is done by 10% of the church members. I want to thank those of you, first of all, who do faithfully serve. Those of you who faithfully served in the past, trust me, your, your service is not overlooked. Those of you who are faithfully serving now, trust me, your faithfulness is not overlooked. But there's no such thing as retiring from ministry in the Bible. It doesn't exist. There's not a verse that says, well, when you reach a certain point, when you've been serving for a certain amount of time, then you can go ahead and let other people do it. It's not there. It doesn't exist. No matter how long I serve in the ministry, there's never an age where I can come and say, okay, I'm done. Now, it's easier for me to say that because I'm young, so I know you guys are looking at me like, yeah, it's easy for you to say. Exactly, I know, I know that, right? But my hope is that when I'm 90 years old, I'll still be serving, finding some way to serve, even if it's not as a pastor, that wherever I am, wherever God has me serving, wherever God has placed me, I'll be faithfully serving, Each of us are called to serve. We're called to serve in our churches and to our communities. Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings are not the only places where we will will see uh, people's needs. As a matter of fact, at the end of January, we're even planning on an opportunity to serve our community outside these walls. Simply by baking cookies and delivering them around the community. Just as a a way to just tell people thank you and find a way to pray for them. Will you consider even now to help us reach out to our community in this way in the end of January? Second point here, as we move on in the text, we've seen that Jesus sees the needs around him. But not only does he see the needs, he meets those needs around him in abundance. Now check out how Jesus does this. Look at, look at beginning in verse 9. It says there, um, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother in verse 8, said to him, verse 9, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in in the place. So the men sat down about 500, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. Now let's unpack these couple of verses here. The context of the, uh, the, the, the context here, you, you think about the size and the quality of this meal, right? This is a huge meal. And when we're talking barley loaves, we're not talking French loaves, right? We're not talking six-inch foot Subway sub loaf of bread, right? These are probably like biscuits, right? These type of loaves are probably more like biscuits. Barley loaves were a common food for the very poor, 
Um, the fish were, were also probably some kind of preserved small fish, uh, possibly even a pickled fish, the way the language there is there. It's possibly even like a pickled fish. Now, there's a great comparison in Scripture. We, we're not left alone to our imagination, the size of Jesus' miracle here. If you turn to 2 Kings, I want you to actually turn there, if you can, uh, turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. This is phenomenal. This is absolutely amazing. I, I love this. I found this this week while I was studying. It blew my mind. All right, 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 42. A man came from some city. I'm not going to pronounce that. Uh, if you get there, you'll know what I mean. Um, a man came from a certain city, bringing the man of God bread from, from uh, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, barley loaves, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give them to the men that they may eat. Remember, this is 20 barley loaves, okay? Give them to the men that they may eat. But the servant said, how can I set this before 100 men? So we repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Here we have Elisha, who is given 20 barley loaves, very similar to what this boy had. And with those 20 loaves, the people were like, how in the world are we going to feed 100 people with these 20 loaves? Now here's Jesus with a fourth of the amount of loaves, five loaves, with 100 to 300 times the amount of people. And he feeds every one of them with leftovers. Now that's not significant. What, what, that, that's fascinating. Um, so what, why, why is that significant? Let's look at this then. Um, th- these, these, uh, this similar uh, miracle that took place uh, for both Elijah and, and Elisha in First and Second Kings. Both Elijah and Elisha are depicted very similarly to Moses. In fact, it's, it's, it's that the way the narratives are described, what Elijah and Elisha are doing, it's presented that way to make them look like a prophet like Moses who is coming to continue to draw you forward in the narrative. Remember, all of the Bible is one story. God has ordained that this whole story is all going to go together, right? So it's not that these are not true events. Elijah and Elisha were absolutely real people. The ministries that God gave them were very real ministries. But the way their ministries are presented in the text, the truth of their ministries that's presented in the text, is presented in a way that makes them look like Moses, So Elijah and Elisha, they look like they might be prophets like Moses. Yet, as we know, they don't become prophets like Moses. Elijah is taken away in a chariot of fire, and Elisha dies a natural death. Right? They don't fulfill the promise. They don't bring salvation to the world. They don't do it. Because they're not the prophet like Moses. They're prophets, similar to Moses, but they're not the prophet like Moses. So there's all these similarities that are to Moses. Remember, we said that this passage draws all these connections to Moses. Here's yet another one where we have Jesus' miracle itself draws you to look at Elisha, which draws you to look at Moses. It's fascinating. The, 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 the great care that is given in what Jesus does here, the, the, the depth of what it is that he does here. Their narratives drive the reader forward to continue reading in in search for the prophet. This narrative in John then gives yet another connection to Moses in the fulfillment of the Deuteronomy 18 prophecy. 
Jesus is then, as we, look, as we look at this text, Jesus is far greater than Elisha. Far greater. Jesus, we also uh, remember uh, also with connections to Moses, that God provided manna for the people of Israel through the ministry of Moses. We see Jesus is far greater than Moses. Jesus is certainly the greater prophet like Moses proclaimed in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Absolutely the case. Not only does he provide this lavish, abundant meal, look at how much is left over, verses 12 and 13. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. There is more left over than they started with. These baskets are not like small little children's Easter baskets. These are like your mommy and daddy Easter baskets, okay? These are big baskets that they have. They're filled with barley, with bread, filled with leftovers. He started with five little cakes and ended up with 12 overflowing baskets of food. How amazing is that? What a miracle that takes place. What a miracle. This shows that, that Jesus does not, he, he, he provides for these people and he provides abundantly. The remaining, there, there's, it says that there's 12 remaining, remaining uh, baskets of bread. And that number 12 there is probably significant. It is definitely significant. Now, why that's significant is kind of debated. Some suggest that this is showing that Jesus is the great provider for the 12 tribes of Israel. Others suggest that this is Jesus is, is showing the disciples, the 12 disciples, that he can provide for them. Now, either way, that's not really, I think, I think either one of those could be fine. Like Either one of those could work. I'm not exactly sure which one the reference is. It's not clear in the passage itself. Uh, not super clear. There's definitely a good argument for either one. Uh, while the number is certain, is, is significant, its referent is, is uncertain. However, in, uh, in looking at these, it, it could go either way. Now, whoever the, refer the number references, I think the, a, a greater point that's made here in the passage, it, it, uh, it brings us back to our scripture reading this morning. If you remember back in John chapter 2, Remember from several weeks ago in John chapter 2, Jesus had turned water into wine. What was the point of the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine? It was to show that he is the Messiah who will usher in a time of plenty, including plenty of wine. That that, that sign of plenty of wine, of plenty of drink, of plenty of, of nourishment was a sign of the Messiah, a sign of the end times. And here again, Jesus does the same thing, only with bread. In Isaiah chapter 25, if you, if you were to look back there and look at, look at uh, verse 6, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow of aged wine well refined. A huge, rich feast. Jesus, in providing this meal and showing his hospitality, shows once again that he is without a doubt the Messiah. Without a doubt. <clears throat> the time of the Messiah would bring an abundance of food, just like in the wilderness in Exodus, 
where God provided enough food for everyone to eat and then some. Jesus provides an abundance of food for this crowd, revealing that he is the Messiah, the Savior. As we look for ways to serve our community then, we often are stifled by budgets, facilities, or any number of things. Here we see that Jesus didn't just meet the needs of the people. To meet the needs of the people would have been enough, but instead he met the needs of the people in abundance. In the way we serve others in our church and in our community, we should not be giving of ourselves with what little energy we have left over. We should always seek to give in abundance. The work of the kingdom is the most important work we can be doing while on this earth. As a church, serving one another and serving our community is our highest calling. Often we perceive the work that we do here as a footnote to our week. We'll get to it if we can. Uh, what would our lives look like if we saw our service to one another and to our community as our highest priority? Do you think we would grow in, in our love for one another? Do you think we'd grow in our accountability to one another? Do you think that our community would notice and be drawn to the Savior? Jesus not only gave an abundance of bread, but he gave his very life for our salvation. What's stopping us from faithfully and lavishly being the hands and feet of Jesus in Gordon and in the surrounding community? What's stopping us? Third thing we'll see here today, we saw that Jesus sees the needs of people around him. Jesus gives to those needs in absolute abundance. And third, we'll see that Jesus rejects selfish gain and false worship. In these last two verses, some, some fascinating things take place. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And at that we might say, Yeah, they did it, Finally! We would speak too soon, though. The people responded with what initially looks like a positive response. Having seen the miracle, they believe that Jesus is the prophet, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, the prophet like Moses. But when we get to verse 26, we're going to see that the reason for following Jesus were once again superficial. Verse 26 it says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say unto you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. You got your belly full, and that's why you're trying to follow me now. So their response is just their bellies talking. Well, it looks like a great worshipful response. Ultimately, it's just an emotional reaction. And further, we see how, how, how else these guys respond. In verse 66, if you look at that real quickly, it says, after Jesus, Jesus then teaches, what we'll look at next week, Jesus teaches on what, what the significance of this miracle was. And after he continues to, to describe this, verse 66, and after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. These people who were eager, so eager to show that Jesus is the prophet, He's the fulfillment. And what we'll see here, Jesus recognized they wanted to make him their king. Yet almost every single one of them walked away. When Jesus explained to them what that really meant to follow him, they walked away. Verse 15 then, 
Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus was all too aware of their hearts. He knew what was going to come up in verse 66. He knew what was coming. They were not interested in worshiping a savior, but they were interested in setting up a king who could save them from Rome. They were looking for a political ruler. They weren't looking for a savior from their sins. There were probably enough people to succeed. Remember, we had 10 to 30,000 people that were there. 10 to 30,000 is a pretty significant number of people. They could probably start a little bit of an overthrow. If Jesus would have taken it, they absolutely could have. But Jesus was not interested in being a political king or merely a political savior. No, Jesus' purpose was to be far, was to be a far greater king and savior. He did not come to save the Jews from the tyranny of Rome, but rather came to save mankind from the tyranny of sin. Jesus was not interested in shallow power. He was already the all-powerful God. He was not interested in their false worship. He sought true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. So finally, we see this, that Jesus does not serve out of selfish gain or false worship. Similarly, when we serve, our service is never to make a name, to make our own name great. If you serve because you love recognition, you need to step back and reprioritize right now. As your pastor, I would rather have two or three people who serve wholeheartedly seeking the glory of the Savior than 500 people who are serving out of selfish gain, social status, or recognition from others. Just don't want it. And neither does Jesus. Now, not only should our motives for serving be checked, but we also must be aware of what the goal of our service ought to be. We should not serve the community or serve one another to get people to come to our church. That's not the end goal. The end goal is not, let's go out and serve people so we can fill these pews. That's not the goal. We should not serve to get some sort of emotional self-satisfaction. Here people come back from mission trips all the time and they say, oh, just, you know, I learned so much from that trip. And again, absolutely, you go on a mission trip, you are going to be a changed person. But that's not the goal. The goal is not, so I I don't want to go on a mission trip so that I can be changed. I want to go on a mission trip so others will worship Jesus. I want to serve in our community so that others will worship Jesus. Every way we serve toward each other and toward our community ought not to be sent, ought to be set, ought to be centered on the one and only goal that really matters, and that's to lead others to worship Jesus. Our goal in inviting people to come to church is not to fill these pews. If we had a room filled every week with unchanged idolaters, we would have failed as a church. If we filled every one of these pews every single week and everybody was continuing to worship in their own idolatry, we would have failed as a church. We could have the biggest budget in the state of Texas. We could have the best paid staff, the most people coming here, but if lives are not changed and people are not worshiping Jesus, we have failed as a church. Our singular uh, true success is not in the size of our congregation, but in the health of the members of the congregation. Our singular goal every week should be to grow deeper in our love and worship of our Savior. 
that love and worship should overflow in seeking to point others to the Savior. That's why we serve our community. That's why we serve one another. So that in all things, we might bring glory to Jesus Christ. That is our goal. So like Jesus, how are we looking up to see the needs in our community? Secondly, how are we meeting those, those needs? Not out, of, not out of our spare change, but out of our abundance. Spare change figuratively. This is not a sermon about tithing, I promise. Sorry. How are we serving the Lord out of our abundance? And third, what is our motives when we serve? If you're, uh, if you're a Christian here today and you're a member of our church, I ask you, where are your priorities? How can you serve? How is the Lord challenging you to serve? How is the Holy Spirit drawing you to either change a perspective, change a ministry, or, 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 or redirect in some way to finding, finding a place that where you can be most effective to serve the Lord? If you're here today and you're not a believer, none of this matters unless you have received Christ as your Savior. None of this matters unless you worship Christ as your Messiah, as your Lord, as your Savior. If you don't worship Christ, you can't really serve him. Not really, if you're not a Christian. I'm going to ask in a second, we're going to have an invitation. If, if, uh, if you're looking for a church home as well, and you're looking for a place where you can serve the Lord, you found a place. We could absolutely uh, use your service. We could absolutely find a place for you to serve. We could absolutely love, we would love to have you here to be a part of our community of faith. Uh, during this invitation, uh, if, if you want either during the invitation or after the service, pull me aside. I'd love to talk to you about how you can become a member of our church. Secondly, uh, if you are not a believer, if you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, take that opportunity during this invitation as well. Or after the service, come and grab me. I'd love to share with you how you can know for sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior. And if uh, you are a church member here today, and if you wanted to use this time to uh, talk to the Lord, whatever that might mean, this altar is open, uh, or, or my ears are open. Um, use this time as the Lord has called you. Let me pray for us.